If you have a Bible, open to Genesis chapter 37. And if you have one of our Genesis journals, uh, it is on page 168. We are beginning this week the account of Joseph's life, which is very exciting. Uh, Many of you may be familiar with the life of Joseph, and for some of you, this will be brand new. Uh, But his It's a continuation of Jacob's story and the story of Jacob's sons. And if you're just joining us in our Genesis study uh, for the first time this week, we've been looking at God's love and faithfulness that he established with the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God chose them to be his special people set apart for relationship with him. And God continues to establish his covenant with the offspring of Abraham. And we're going to continue to see his faithfulness to Jacob's sons. And this, uh, this account today serves as a hinge into the rest of Genesis. Um, the events of this chapter shape the rest of Genesis and lead into children of God needing deliverance from the land of Egypt that comprises the whole book of Exodus. And so um, we've got some ground to cover today, so we're going to pray and dive right in. Father, Lord, we thank you so much for the gift of your word and for the gift that it is to gather with the people of God beneath the word of God. Lord, we are a needy people. Lord, we thank you for the promise of eternal life that we have in Jesus, for the promise of life that we have in him now, that we do not belong to ourselves, and that we have been made new and redeemed by you to belong to you. And I thank you even for the reminder uh, right before coming up from David that the, the nature of discipleship is just the simplicity and purity of following and obeying Jesus walking with you by faith and leaving all to follow you. I pray, Father, that you would send forth your spirit even now, Lord, that your presence would be with us here and that we would have hearts to hear what your spirit is saying to your church. Lord, may your word sound forth and accomplish the purpose that you have sent it forth this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Genesis chapter 37, beginning in verse 1. It's the word of the Lord. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Now, chapter 36 was all detailing the, the generations of Esau, and it took a genealogical form, but here... The Word of God is going into the stories of the generations of Jacob, and this account of the generations of Jacob is going to take up the balance of the book of Genesis. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. So, to remind you, this is Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. These are numbers five through eight in the birth order of Jacob's 12 sons, and Joseph was number 11, the the younger brother, the favored brother, and these were the sons of his father's uh, servant wives. 
And so these were not the favored sons. And Joseph, the text says, brought a bad report or an evil report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age. And remember, he was the son of Rachel, the wife that he loved. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheep arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. And his brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come and bow ourselves down to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. So this is scene one of our account today, and I'm calling it Dreams and Hatred. If you, if you look at the text, dreams are mentioned about 10 times, and you can see over and over again this hatred of Joseph's brothers toward him. So these are two threads that you can see weaving throughout these 11 verses. On the one hand, one thread, you've got the providence of God working and moving in Joseph's life, and you have Joseph's favor with God and with his father. So that's thread one. And on the other thread, you've got the hatred of Joseph's brothers towards Joseph. And it was interesting to me, even in the commentaries on this account, they kind of describe, some of them describe Joseph as this bratty kid or this self-righteous kid who displays cockiness towards his brothers. But I think that that in and of itself highlights our tendency to side with sinners over against God, right? So we read this account of Joseph bringing an evil report to their father, and we think, that little snitch. Like, he's reporting to his dad what his brothers were doing. That's not a great way to endear your brothers to you. So he kind of had what was coming to him. But this is where the hatred begins. He brings an evil report of his brothers to his father, and they hate him because he exposed their deeds as evil. The second reason that we see a reason for why they hate Joseph so much is because of Jacob's favoritism towards Joseph. Now, this is obviously not right. This is a, a sin that runs deep in Jacob's family. His father favored his brother, and his mother favored him, and then he had favorites among his wives, and now favorites among his children. And to mark out this favoritism, he made Joseph this specially made robe that was probably 
the translation, this multicolored, vibrant robe that ran to the wrists and down to the ankles, and it was just this prized possession that was to highlight how much he loved and honored Joseph. But you can almost just picture Joseph interacting among his brothers, and you've got like the regular browns and grays and the, the shepherd's clothing, and then you've got Joseph, who's just being highlighted as the favorite of his father. And it says that they, when they, the brothers saw that their father loved him more, they hated him, and they could not speak peacefully to him. Their hearts were embittered against Joseph because of the actions of their father, and all of their speech was filled with venom and bitterness towards Joseph. And then Joseph begins to have these dreams, right? The word dreams mentioned 10 times in this passage, and they begin to hate him even more. And we know that dreams have played a big role in the narrative leading up to this point. God has revealed himself through dreams to different chosen among the fathers, and he's uh, given his promises and relayed his covenant to the fathers in the form of dreams. And dreams were considered to be revelation from God, but especially if the dreams were repeated or doubled down on by a follow-up dream. So Joseph says this later when he's interpreting uh, Pharaoh's dreams for him in Genesis 41 verse 32. Joseph says the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God and that God will shortly bring it about. So we don't know if that was common knowledge among Joseph's brothers, but Joseph knew this thing that when a dream's repeated, this thing is fixed by God. It wasn't just uh, a weird dream. So Eric was describing a weird dream that he had last night. It could have been indigestion, right? But if he has a follow-up dream on the same thing, you've got to watch yourself. <laughs> but I, I want to step back, and this is part of meditating on the Word of God together. And think about what these dreams say about God. Right? This is a God who loves to reveal himself to his people. He's giving Joseph what is going to happen in advance, and he is initiating the events that will unfold in this chapter, but he's also giving Joseph promises that are going to anchor him in the coming storm. And I want to I highlight this. This is the supernatural activity of God and God can speak however he wants. We're even told that in the new covenant, in the last days after the spirit of God is poured out, that the young men will dream dreams and the old men will have visions. But we, we feel like God doesn't speak that way anymore or we, we silence God in that way. But I want to highlight two things here. This is sort of an aside about dreams. I think that you should be open to God speaking to you through dreams. I think that he speaks through dreams and Jesus appears to people in, through dreams all over the world. He, he's God. He can speak to people however he wants. But while you're open to God speaking through dreams, we know that we have a prophetic word, Peter says, more sure than even an audible voice from heaven. This is a word that tests every other word. Every prophecy is tested by Scripture. That, that same passage from Peter says that no Prophecy is a matter of private interpretation, that we interpret what we hear from God by the Word of God, and that God speaks through His Word. And this is 
a, a passage from Numbers chapter 12 highlights the privilege that we have in the Word of God to have this Word more sure than even dreams from God. In Numbers chapter 12, it says, when God is confronting Miriam and Aaron for how they're talking about Moses, and God says, hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. It's the same picture that's given when Jesus is speaking to the crowds in parables, but then he gives the understanding to his disciples that we get to receive the word of the Lord clearly and because of the atoning work of Christ, we get to behold the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus face to face. So in Moses' time, the people got to see secondhand glory shining in the face of Moses after Moses had an experience with God and an encounter with God, and then he would go as a mediator and speak to the people because the people could not see the face of God and live. But now in Christ, because Christ has been sacrificed in our place and he has made peace with God by his blood, he has rent the veil in two and has opened up a new and living way for us to behold the face of God in the face of Christ Jesus through his word. And so Paul says, we with unveiled face here behold as in a mirror the glory of the Lord and are, and are transformed from one degree of glory to another. And so, yeah, pray for God to reveal himself to you every way that he is willing. But don't long for a dream when you have the word. Don't long for a dream more than you long for the word of God. Get in this book and let this book get into you. Joseph's brothers, it says they hate him for his dreams and for his words. And I think that that indicates that they did. They, they hated that God was supposedly revealing himself to Joseph or was revealing to Joseph what would happen through these dreams. Not just for what Joseph was saying about them. Every time Joseph's recounting a dream, he's saying, behold, 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 hear me, listen to this. This is what God is saying. And they despise Joseph for it. It is this same kind of mentality that Miriam and Aaron had towards Moses in that passage saying, has the Lord indeed only spoken to Moses? Has he not also spoken through us? It's, Joseph, are, are you going to rule over us? And so they see him as this self-righteous dude that's giving to them these dreams that are not really from God and they are filled with disgust and with contempt for Joseph. And then this section concludes even with a rebuke from his father, saying, are your mother and I going to bow down before you too? But there's two different responses between Jacob and his sons. It says that Jacob got to store these things up in his heart. It's got this language that Mary stored up these things in her heart when Jesus was saying, should I not be about my father's business? And she remembered this and she stored it up for later. But Joseph's brothers were jealous of him. Now, when I was first studying this, I was thinking, all right, they, they hated him. And then th two different times, they hated him even more. They hated him even more. But this term for jealousy is like the boiling point. It is 
hatred that has been brewing and it's boiling up into, it's, it's about to take action. So you, you're supposed to read into this that when you're, you're ending this paragraph, Joseph's brothers were jealous of him of, oh, this is not good. They hated him. They hated him even more. And now we have reached a boiling point with this envy and hatred. So I want to do a little aside or expose of jealousy because it's interesting that when Stephen is doing a recounting of this story of the patriarchs as he's preaching to the crowds that were jealous of the growing church of Christ, he highlights from this whole account that Joseph's brothers were jealous of him. Proverbs 14, verse 30 says, A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. So envy, if we're going to look at, okay, what is jealousy? What is envy? What does this look like in our lives? Envy stands in contrast to a tranquil heart. And I want to, I want to spend some time here for a moment before we move on to the rest of the account, because I think sometimes... Uh, we come up with different ways of describing sin. So if we talk about jealousy, you may think, I don't really feel jealous of anybody, or maybe your heart is full of jealousy, and that is one of your besetting sins. But this form of jealousy has so many accompanying sins that you might have it in, in root form, and full-blown jealousy and hatred is the flower and what it grows into. So you need to know that envy describes this heart, opposed to being peaceful and tranquil, it's a heart that's boiling over with pride and self-pity. It's longing for what others have or any lot different than what you have. And it's just brewing. Self-pity, discontent. Underneath envy and jealousy are unbelief and discontentment. Right? Because all of our sin in any form is ultimately sin against God first. So underneath jealousy and envy is the age-old lie that God is not good and that God is holding out on you. It's the same lie that was given to Adam and Eve in the garden, right? So, so God is not being good to you. He's holding out on you. And so there's this discontentment and self-pity that wants what other people have. So at the end of the day, jealousy is actually an anger with God that's directed at man. Uh, it's, it's a lack of contentment with God's lot for you and a desire for him to give you what he's given to other people in the moment. And James writes in James chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. This kind of selfish lust and envy, right? I'm, I'm, I'm using those words carefully. It's a self-oriented lust that wants something for yourself at the expense of other people because God is holding out on you in the moment. 
This kind of selfish entitlement and envy are antithetical to love because love does not envy and love does not seek its own. It, it, is, it is opposite to who Jesus is. It's opposite to the love of Christ that the Holy Spirit sheds abroad in our hearts. And as we're walking by the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, first one, is love. So if you are not walking by the Spirit, there will be a vacuum created for the self to take root and envy and selfish entitlement and all other forms of this same kind of sin will have room to grow and ruminate and they will begin to boil over. And this passage highlights for us the danger of all of this sin, even in its seed form. And we have to be careful of not letting our hearts deceive ourselves that this sin is not exceedingly sinful because we don't use the Bible's terms for our sin. We don't say that we're full of hatred for people. We say that we're feeling frustrated, right? right? But the Bible calls not love, hatred. And Jesus says, if you have hatred in your heart, you've killed your brother. So if you have an absence of love towards people, you're committing murder in your heart. That's what Jesus says. If we have this self-pity in our hearts, which I think is closely connected to this kind of envy, we are actually complaining and grumbling against God. And it is a form of anger against God. That's why in that, that same Numbers passage, where right before Numbers 12, which we already referenced, is Numbers 11. And when David preached this message, I, I cannot help but keep going back to it in my own heart where the people are grumbling against God because he's provided for them miracle bread from heaven but not miracle meat and they're longing for Egypt and they're longing for the free food and the delicacies that they had when they were slaves. They were looking at the life of the world and they were envying what they had when they were enslaved, a picture of being dead in sin as opposed to the life that they had in God as he was bringing them out of their slavery and into the promised land. And they were grumbling against God. And so God, in the worst form of judgment, gives them exactly what they wanted. And he gave them this miracle meat in the form of quail. And it says, while the meat was still in their mouths, a plague broke out and he killed them. And it says, everybody who had the craving perished. That is an alarming, that, that, that phrase just has captivated me and it's held on to my heart since you preached that message, bro. Everyone who had the craving. So we have to step back and look at, does my heart have cravings that are really manifestations of an anger at God? Because I'm discontent with my lot. I'm discontent with who he is, and I don't like my current circumstances. Nobody really understands how hard you have it. If your wife only knew how hard you have it and the things that you put up with and everything that you put on your shoulders, if your husband only knew what you dealt with all day, if people could only see the hurt and the pain that you're suffering, and we wallow in self-pity, but it boils up and turns into anger at God and anger at men. So just as this aside, but I don't want to miss it, we're going to get to this in the application, but these are not sins to be tamed. 
they must be crucified. They have to be confessed and forsaken, and they have to be seen for the dangers that they are because they will grow to the size of the tank that you give them. And, and they will brew and they will boil over and they will captivate your life. And so confess and forsake it. Allow God to search your heart for a sense of entitlement and self-pity that would lead to envying what other people have that are really rooted in unbelief toward God and discontentment with his goodness and his care for you. So that sets up and leads us into the next scene of this text. So lean into this. This is what's happening with Joseph's brothers. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. Alert should be going off because Shechem is where Jacob had spent all this time in disobedience to God. And it was the party scene where they had gotten comfortable instead of being in the place that God had called them. And Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, here I am. So he said to him, this is Jacob speaking to Joseph, go now and see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, what are you seeking? Verse 16, I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, they have gone away, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Now this scene is setting the stage for a great reversal later in the Joseph account. So this is like paralleling what's going to happen with Joseph coming with Joseph's brothers coming to Joseph later in Genesis. But Joseph is going to great lengths to seek out for his father, in obedience to his father, to seek out brothers who hate him. He's gone 50 miles north to Shechem, and then when he doesn't find them there, and he's, he's described as wandering, and you get this picture of him just being vulnerable, wandering like a sheep out in the fields. And, and we should be on alert if you had never read this passage before. And you know, Joseph's brothers are, have hated him to the point of jealousy that wants to take vengeful action. And Joseph is described as being by himself looking for these brothers. And he's traveled over 60 miles to find them. Verse 18, they saw him from afar. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then, then we will say that a fierce, literally evil. So this is the same word Joseph had brought an evil report to his brothers and they, they remember it. They're bitter about it. They said, oh, we'll say an evil beast, an evil animal has devoured him and we'll see what becomes of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands saying, let us not take his life. Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. And they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty and there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. 
Then Midianite traders passed by and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, the boy is gone and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, this we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold him into Egypt to Potiphar, the officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. I want to give you a couple of notes on this of how far this envy actually took him. And then we're going straight. We're making a beeline from here to the Lord Jesus and how Joseph is a picture of Christ. So you can see the effects of unrepentant hatred in the hearts of his brothers that they are so callous. They mug their brother and leave him in a pit and then they sit down and eat lunch. You have to have such a callous heart. If you're going to beat your brother, throw him in a pit, and then ask your other brothers to pass you a sandwich while you decide whether or not you should kill him or not. These guys are, are far gone in their hatred of Joseph. Now Reuben, now, okay, so fast forward, Genesis 42, 41, when Joseph's brothers are recounting this story and they're living with the guilt of what they've done, they said that in this moment, Joseph was distressed and was begging them for mercy. And they didn't listen to him. So just to paint the scene of what's happening, Joseph's pleading with his brothers and tears crying out to them to have mercy on him. And they are just callous and selling him into slavery anyways. Reuben intervenes. This is the oldest son. He intervenes to preserve his life. But it would seem that his attempt at rescue is really an attempt in self-preservation as the firstborn because when Joseph is sold into slavery, the first words out of Reuben's mouth are, what am I going to do? How am I going to face dad as the firstborn son? And I've been given this responsibility. And oh, by the way, he had just slept with his father's concubine. So this was not going to add to his poor reputation with his father. And so he's saying, I, I'm not even going to be able to go home now. So he, he, yes, he was trying to preserve Joseph's life, but he was doing it in a self-interested way. And it was actually Judah who's the one who preserved Joseph's life and had him sold into slavery rather than being killed. And it's Judah, we know, that ultimately receives the blessing of God and would become ultimately the father of the Christ who is to come. Now, ultimately, through the story of Joseph, we are going to see this truth shine brightly that what Joseph's brothers meant for evil, God would use for good. God would use for their own salvation and for the salvation of many lives. And it's not just that sometimes you hear people say that what people mean for evil, God turned for good. But the language that we're going to see weeks from now in Genesis 50 is that what the brothers meant for evil, God intended for good. It wasn't just that 
God was dealt lemons and he turned it into lemonade, but that God was sovereignly working throughout this whole experience. And he was setting things into motion that were actually going to fulfill the dreams that he gave to Joseph, but he was doing it in a way that looked like he was working against his own plan. So in the story of Joseph, we're going to see so much about the providence of God and the ways of God. This, this is a God who loved Joseph. He loved his brothers and he loved his father. And Jacob goes on to experience 20 years of thinking that Joseph is dead and mourning him and grieving over his loss. And God allows it, but he, is, he has a long view on your life and on the suffering of your life. And he is at work providentially for his glory and for your good. And this story of Joseph serves us as one of the most clear types of Christ in all of the Old Testament. One of the most clear pictures of the Christ who is to come. Joseph is the innocent man who through his God-ordained suffering is used of God to provide salvation for his household and for the world. And I want you to go with me right now, just in this remainder of our time, to look through Joseph to Jesus just in this passage. So, quickly, like Joseph, Jesus was the favorite son of his father. This is not favoritism like we see in Jacob, but Jesus is despised for being the loved son of his father by the people of his day. The Lord Jesus proclaimed all that the father revealed to him, regardless of how it would be perceived. So just like Joseph kept crying, behold, this is what God showed me. Behold, behold, I had this dream. Regardless of what the implications would be for him, Jesus said, I always do and speak what I hear from my father. Jesus was sent by his father to search out his brothers. And the book of John is clear that Jesus came to his own, but his own did not receive him. Most people, being sinful, hated Jesus. This is Jesus' own account. Along with the religious leaders, people hated Jesus, and their hatred grew more and more. Yes, people followed Jesus when it was convenient for them or when it cost them nothing or when they could get something from Jesus. But Jesus' own testimony was that the world, like Joseph's brothers, hated him. And the question is, well, why? In John 7, verse 7, Jesus tells his disciples, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Like Joseph, Jesus brought an evil report against them, and they hated him for it. The same was true of the religious leaders in Luke 16. You see Jesus exposing them. He's in Luke 16, verse 13 through 15. Jesus says, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things and they ridiculed Jesus. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. 
For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. So Jesus heard righteousness and heard the message of his father and he proclaimed it to the world around him with boldness and with clarity and he didn't change the message and he went right after people's sin and they hated him for it. They hated the testament that Jesus was and is to the righteousness of God. Jesus also said in John 5, that the religious leaders love the glory that comes from men rather than the glory that comes from God. So these religious leaders were jealous for the praise of men. And so like with Joseph's brothers, the religious leaders' hatred for Jesus was full of envy and jealousy. In John chapter 12, verse 19, they're describing them, they're talking amongst themselves and they're They're enviously saying, look, the whole world has gone after this teacher, Jesus. And so after, like Joseph, Jesus is betrayed for pieces of silver. We see this scene where Jesus is standing before Pilate in Matthew chapter 27. And there's so many connections to our story with Joseph in this one scene. Look at this. Matthew 27 verse 15. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they gathered, Pilate said to them, who do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ? Listen to verse 18. For Pilate knew that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. So God had given Pilate's wife warning in a dream, and he disregarded it, like Joseph's brothers. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And they all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. I think Pilate is really like a picture of Reuben in this instance where he's seeking to deliver Jesus but is really out of self-interest. And as soon as the self-interest wasn't there, he just said, fine. But as with Joseph, what people meant for evil against Jesus ultimately paved the way for the salvation of the world. As the church is praying for boldness and for grace to endure persecution in Acts chapter 4, We read them saying, truly in this city, they're in Jerusalem, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So Jesus suffered at the hands of his own people who hated him all the way to the point of death because he exposed them as evil and because he spoke the words from his father and they were envious of his words and of the revelation that he was giving from God. But as with Joseph, God was orchestrating all of the events so that 
through Jesus' suffering, the world would have an opportunity for salvation if they would come to him in repentance and faith. So I want to give you some, some takeaways for us. We look at Joseph and his brothers and then Jesus and how Joseph is a picture of the Christ who is to come and now the implications for us. The first, trust in God's sovereign goodness. Trust in God's sovereign goodness. There are going to be times in your life where you're at the front end of Joseph's story. You have all these promises of God and it looks like based on the activity of God, you're actually working in the opposite direction. And if you were to judge God by what you can see, you would judge that he is unjust or not good or that he has forgotten about you or that he doesn't care for you. But all this time, God was at work in Joseph and ultimately would be at work through Joseph. We read in Romans 8, verse 28 and 29, we know that for those who love God, all things, did you hear this? It's through the promises that we become partakers of the divine nature, that you overcome the evil one. You need to know and believe and have your soul be satisfied and grow strong in faith based on promises like this. This is not a promise for a coffee mug. It's not a promise for, for you to grow so used to that it's just bumper sticker material. This is your life. We know. It starts with knowing something. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom God foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son in order that we might be the firstborn among many, many brothers. So God is sovereignly working through all the details of your life in everything that makes you prone to envy and self-pity. God is at work to produce Christ-likeness in you. And after you have suffered for a little while, after you've gone through only necessary sufferings so that your faith could be purified and, be res and result in praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, the, the, the Bible is clear. This suffering that you're going through is doing something. It's producing an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. And so we're charged not to compare the suffering of this life with the glory that's to be revealed to us and to take a long view on what God is doing. And when you can't see what he's doing, you can trust him because we have these promises. We have these examples in his word that are given to us for our instruction so that we might walk with faith and hope in the goodness of God. Number two, pursue contentment with his lot for you. So number one, trust in God's sovereign goodness. Two, pursue contentment with his lot for you. This is just a simple exhortation. Family, Jesus is enough. This is all the exhortations about contentment in the Bible spring from the fact that you have Christ and he's enough. Hebrews 13 
Verse 5 and 6, we're exhorted to keep our life free from a love of money and be content with what you have. For Jesus has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So the reason why we can be content right now in the midst of what you have or don't have is because you have Jesus and he is enough. It's the same thing that Paul writes in his letter to the Philippians that he's learned in whatever situation he's in how to be content. He knows how to have plenty and he knows how to suffer want. And it's a secret that he's had to learn as he's walked with Jesus. I know how to be content in any circumstance. This is breathtaking. You meditate on that. I know how to not wallow in self-pity or in covetousness because Jesus is enough. This is right after him saying, I've learned the secret of contentment. He says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's the context. You can be content if you're being sold into slavery or if you're coming out the other side. You know the secret of contentment because you have Christ. He's promised, I will never leave you or forsake you. Number three, put away envy and jealousy and their accompanying sins. So what I'm saying, accompanying sins, I'm saying you may not think that your life has envy or jealousy, but the things that are connected to it with pride or entitlement or self-pity a self-oriented spirit that is constantly considering your life and your circumstances that's free of consideration from other people. Put them away because envy and self-pity and covetousness have no place in the crucified life. We are called to deny ourselves and to follow Jesus. So that's at the most simple place of the call that Again, David reminded me of right before coming up here, just the simple call of following Jesus is to leave all and to follow him, to deny ourselves and to follow him. And so if we are following him and taking up our cross to follow him, then self-pity and a sense of entitlement before God have no place in the life of a believer. And so we are called to put them to death and I think to come to know the promises that you have. You have right now, believer, more than you could possibly fathom. And in your life, what you might have is a timing issue. A timing issue. Where you've been promised these things and you don't see them in reality yet, but you wait on the Lord and trust Him. In the midst of what you can't see now, trust Him for the future. This is what Peter writes in his first letter the end of chapter one, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Remember, love is, it drives out this self-pity and this self-orientation. Peter says, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass wither and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. 
So this is what Peter is exhorting us to. You have been born again. You're not who you used to be. So you don't have to act like you used to act. You come to the word of God that brought you to life and you drive out who you used to be by faith in what Jesus has done and is doing in your life. And you long for the pure spiritual milk of the word of God. And by it, you grow up. You grow up in faith. You grow away from envy and self-pity and entitlement. And you grow into a sincere brotherly love and an earnest affection from the heart that has been purified by the word of God. And lastly, Eric, you guys can go ahead and come back up. Last, but this is important. So don't, just because Eric's coming back up, don't tune out. This is important. So trust God's sovereign goodness. Pursue contentment with his lot for you. Put away envy and jealousy and their accompanying sins. Number four, go to Jesus and be a Joseph. Go to Jesus and be a Joseph. In John chapter 15, Jesus tells his disciples, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Does that sound familiar? The world, like Joseph's brothers, sees that you've been chosen out of the world and that God has set his favor on you and so they despise you for it. In Ephesians 5, Paul writes to the believers in Ephesus saying, at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. So we are called, as those who have been set apart by Jesus, to follow Jesus, to no longer walk like we did when we were non-believers, but to put away all those attitudes and mentalities and actions and take no part in unfruitful works of darkness, but instead to expose them by your life and by your words. It is not going to make you popular. But there is this great winnowing that is happening in the church right now. There are deconversion stories that are abounding of people who are saying, I used to follow Jesus, but I'm undoing a lot of the damage that was done by all this hurtful belief about God that I used to have. And now I've got this way more loving, way more tolerant, way more accepting view of Jesus. So they haven't disregarded Jesus completely in name. They claim him, but with their lives, they're crying out, destroy him, right? We want Barabbas, crucify him. So this is a way of crucifying Jesus today, right? This is a way that people in the church will begin to hate Jesus and they will hate you. Is if they can exchange, because the a lot of people in the world, they don't want to outright say mean things about Jesus. You know, certainly people that have grown up in the church but if we can adopt a different Jesus, then in a Psalm 2 fashion, we can throw off his chains and say, let's destroy this one and adopt this other one that will, in self-preservation, 
keep me from being hated. And because we love the praise of men and the glory that comes from men, there are many whose love for the true Christ will grow cold and they will abandon the love that they had at first for a different Christ. And so, I point you to close this passage about Moses from Hebrews chapter 11. It's describing what real faith looks like. And the writer of Hebrews says, By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Verse 26, Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. So what this passage is saying is that hatred in Jesus' name is a treasure. You're, you're joining Christ in his sufferings and you, you leave rejoicing that you're kind of worthy, even sinful you, to suffer any kind of shame for the sake of that name. And you count it a treasure, a greater treasure than anything that you could envy the world for. That's why in Proverbs it says things like, don't be envious of sinners, but fear the Lord. Have a long view. Be like Moses and be willing to suffer reproach and hatred for the sake of the name and be willing to proclaim righteousness and stand with the word of God, even when it will mean that the world takes a moral high ground over you and calls you all kinds of evil and false accusation for the sake of the Son of Man. Jesus says, rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And so we are called to go to Jesus outside the gate and to bear his reproach and to be a Joseph, to be willing to expose unlawful deeds of darkness and to be willing to declare whatever the Father reveals to us. And God will use it. He will use it. It may seem like God has abandoned you. Whether where you are right now in life or as you take stands for Jesus in the coming days. But he is using all of those things, all of them, for your good of conformity to the image of Christ and ultimately for the glory of his name. So, don't waste today. Grow in the grace and knowledge by longing for the pure milk of the word. Come to know him intimately to where you, it's not just words on a page, but you actually know him in such a way that shame for his name is better than anything that you could hope for in the world. And let's keep our eyes fixed on him and the coming reward. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we thank you that you are a God who reveals yourself and your word and what you're doing to your people. Father, I pray that we would not be a people that have received the revelation from God that don't steward it that we would have this living word that has brought us to life and not 
hunger and thirst for it like newborn children longing for the pure milk of the word. So I pray that by your word, we would grow up with respects to salvation, that we would take hold of the eternal life to which we've been called. So we're not just going to drift towards it. I pray that you would make us a people who have faith that is so steel-like because of the word that we are willing to suffer reproach and shame for the sake of the name and that we would have a faith that knows in the midst of any and every circumstance that we must put away grumbling and self-pity and entitlement because we are those who have taken up our cross and are following after Jesus who loved us and gave himself up for us. Jesus, we are mindful today that we cannot follow you in our own strength. You've told us that apart from you, we can do nothing and we feel it. I pray that you would come by your spirit and empower what you require from your people and that we would be a people who follow hard after you. Lord, may it be true of us that I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and that the life that we live in the flesh, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself up for us. Lord Jesus, thank you for being the true and the better Joseph, the one who suffered all of these things so that we could have life in your name. Lord, would you make us faithful? In Jesus' name, amen.